Thanks. Uh, hi. I'm uh, Jim Hopkins. I have a wife and a 13-year-old daughter and an 11-year-old son, so I am not used to having to put more than two sentences together at any given time, so if I stumble and flail around a little bit, please be kind to me. Uh, I'd also like to thank Mike Forrest. Is he still here? He gave me the shirt. This, this morning I spilt coffee, coffee clumsily all over myself, and uh, he gave me literally the shirt off his back. It looks pretty good, don't you think? <laughs> it fits. I gotta lose some weight. All right, that wasn't very nice. Last time I had to do this, this thing that I'm not that comfortable doing, standing up here talking to you guys, I told you uh, that I was a philosophy major way back when. And the one thing they teach you in philosophy is to, uh, before you make your argument, to line up your theses, come up with examples, think about counterexamples, lay your lines of attack. And so the cruelest thing you can do to a philosophy major is to give them a passage to speak on that begins with the words, therefore. Uh, we're not going to start there. I can't start there. Over the last several months, we've had a series of sermons about the first four chapters of Romans, and uh, they were all very well done and had great ideas that, that are worth going back and listening to if you haven't heard them, but I can sum it all up for you. Paul's argument in the first four chapters of Romans is that there's something wrong out there and that there's something wrong in here. And I think, with all due respect to Paul, that that's a pretty easy argument to make. We know that there's something wrong out there. I don't know how many times over the last several months, maybe a year, I've heard people say, our nation's never been more divided. And uh, there just seems to be a lot of conflict and everything else going on out there. But our nation has been more divided. Back in 1860, about a third of the states broke away. And America spent about four years slaughtering each other. 600,000 or more young men died. That was pretty divided. I'm not old enough to remember the 1860s. Uh, but I do remember the 1960s. I was a very small child. But I was paying attention, and we had riots in the streets. When Martin Luther King was assassinated, we had, we had major riots in every city in the United States. And we had the young people protesting the Vietnam War and people in the street burning flags and bras and draft cards. And I remember seeing a lot of articles and hearing a lot of adults talk about how the nation has never been so divided. It's always been that way. We've had world wars, we've had genocide, we've had hunger, we've had famines, we've had storms. Back when Paul was writing his letter to the Romans, there was a guy by the name of Caligula who was the emperor of the known world. And people thought that he was crazy. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to live in a world where the most powerful person in it is thought by many, by many people to be nuts. That's, it's hard to believe that could, anything like that could ever happen. So it's always, my point is, isn't that, that we live in bad, or that we don't live in bad times. It's that times are always kind of bad. 
There's the ancient Chinese curse, right, that says, may you live in interesting times. Well, I've read a fair amount of history, and I can tell you that all times are plenty interesting. So that argument of Paul's is pretty clear to swallow, that there's something wrong out there. But he also says there's something wrong in here. And I think we really know that too if we're being honest, right? We, uh, we're not the people that we want to be. Our relationships aren't as full and rich as they should be. Either we fail or the person that we try to have a relationship fails is broken. We don't achieve the things we want to achieve, but if we do achieve them, it turns out we really didn't achieve much at all. It does, at least still leaves us empty. So what do we do? If there's something wrong out there and something wrong in here, we try to make things right. We try, we try to justify ourselves. That's the first word in the outline that's in your bulletin, justify. And justify means to make something right or prove something right. If you want to get theological, it means to be proven righteous, you know, that term righteous. But it really means that instead of things not being the way they're supposed to be, things are the way they're supposed to be. Instead of us not being the kind of people we're supposed to be, we become the people we're supposed to be. So we want to make that happen. And how do we make that happen? Well, I think we spend most of our lives, when you really get down to it, trying to justify ourselves. We look around and we see other people that we think are successful or happy or content and we try to make ourselves look like that. We see some people who are successful at work and we try to make ourselves look like that. And it's doomed to failure. Paul says it's doomed to failure because we're separated from God. And God is really the source of all that's good, right? He created everything. He's the source of life. He's the source of enjoyment, of fulfillment, of health, of good things to eat. He gave us all that. And if we're separated from that, that means what we're doing is actually heading away from goodness and health and sanity and all those things. So what we really need to do is become right with God, have our, have our relationship with God restored. But again, we're trying to make things up as we go along. We don't know what our real problem is. We don't understand that our problem is separation from God. So we try to build things to make us feel better or think we're on the right road. This reminds me of uh, cargo cults. Anybody know what cargo cult is? Years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Papua New Guinea. And in Papua New Guinea, I found out about these things called cargo cults. Back in the early part of the 20th century, Western civilization started to interact with uh, Aboriginal people out in Melanesia and around Papua New Guinea and Northern Australia and that. And it was like modern society colliding with uh, like a Stone Age civilization, basically. And this really became acute in World War II because there, there was a big war in World War II. I don't know if you've heard about it. But <laughs> what, what ended up happening is in the, in the battles against Japan, the Western powers, the United States especially, had to build huge military bases in previously untouched areas. And like in Papua New Guinea, they would go in there and they put down airstrips and build barracks and put up PX stations and bring in the troops and there's bombers flying in and there's jeeps and there's 
all the stuff that goes with our military bases out there. And you can imagine how jarring this was to the aboriginal people. It was even more jarring when the war ended and all that stuff left. And they were sitting around trying to figure out how to make it all come back. So what they started to do, they figured that if we build an airstrip, if we make things that look like planes, if we put up barracks, if we walk around with sticks on our shoulders and do marching drills, it'll all come back. So here's some pictures of the stuff that they, they built. The idea was, if they could create the forms, then that reality that was beyond those things would come back to them. That's kind of silly, isn't it? But we end up doing the same thing. All right? Again, we go out there and look at other people who are successful and we try to recreate that in our own lives. We know that something's right and we sort of understand how things could be made right and we try to construct things on our own. But for the people of Melanesia and Papua New Guinea, uh, their forms didn't do them any good because the power behind it, the civilization behind it, the reality behind it wasn't there. And I think we find out the same thing in our own lives. We go through the motions, but the source of our goodness, the source of life and health and everything is not, we're not tied into it. We don't have the access that Stephen talked about last week. So that's Paul's argument for the, for the first three chapters of Romans. In chapter four, and then he talks about the work of Christ and how he died for us and how he'd come to make all things right again. And uh, the last verse of chapter 4 is, in his note someplace, it talks about how he died for our sins, but he was raised for our justification. In his resurrection, we now have a right relationship with God. It's done. All that stuff we spent doing trying to build our shelters and our fake airplanes, it turns out that all we have to do is accept Christ's work for us, and it's all done. So that leads us to what Paul says we get from that. We get peace with God. That's the second word in the, in the outline. When I think about peace, I often think about peace as being the absence of war that uh, we don't have anybody actively trying to shoot us. And, uh, you know, this morning, before I got up here, I checked, and we're, we're, as a nation currently, not at war with, like, France and Canada and some other nations, right? And that means that they're not necessarily on our side, but that not, they don't have anything actively against us. And that's a good thing. It's better than having them shoot at us. I think sometimes I think about peace with God in the same way, that he just doesn't have anything actively against me, that he's not on my back, that that's not one more thing I have to worry about when I get up in the morning. God doesn't bother me, or I'm not in trouble with God right now, now I have to worry about dealing with my wife, my family, my job. And, but that's not what peace is in the Bible. You, probably most people are under, have heard of the word shalom, that's the biblical notion of what peace is. It's when instead of everything being wrong, it's everything being right. Uh, Cornelius Plantinga describes peace as 
the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. We spent most of our lives justifying ourselves, trying to make things right, hoping to get Twinkies and machetes. What Paul says happens with justification is that we become, uh, at peace with God, become a member of his family. We don't get just stuff. We get uh, a, a relationship with the person who is behind all that stuff. And that's better than machetes and Twinkies. We have to understand that the work of Christ is not just forgiveness. It's more than just the canceling of a debt. Real justification we have in Christ through faith is a uh, pipeline into the way that things ought to be. Forgiveness, again, sometimes I misunderstand it and think of it merely is as the canceling of debts, but it's much more than that. When my son was seven or eight years old, uh, he did something bad. I don't remember what it was, but I know it was really, I, I know it was really bad because I was going to punish him, and I am a benevolent and kind father. So it must have been bad. And the way I punish my children is often I tell them, okay, we're going to have to have a long talk, which they really don't like, which you guys can understand. And uh, then I give them like a timeout. So I got Jake and I gave him his really long talk, which I enjoy and he doesn't. And then I had his timeout. And when it was over, he came bouncing out of his room. Hi, Dad. Let's, and he started talking to me like there was nothing wrong. And it bothered me. And I thought, did he really feel sorry for what he did? Did any of this work? You know, is this working the way it's supposed to? So finally I said to him, why are you being so friendly? Why are you acting like nothing happened? And he told me, well, you said if we had the long talk and I did my time out, then that would take care of it. He took me at my word. All right, and all of a sudden I realized that he understood forgiveness more than I did. I still wanted to carry and hang on to the grudge. Right? It wasn't doing us any good, but I didn't, I didn't want to let go of the grudge. So that's the way it is with us and God. Uh, when, when, when he forgives us, he forgives us. And it isn't just that, oh good, now he's not on our back and I can try to keep my distance. But it's, we're, our relationship is rekindled. We can be buddies again. All right? He's got our best interests at heart. So that's what peace really brings us. It's not just a ceasefire. It's the, uh, it's putting things back the way they're supposed to be. All right, so that's peace. The third word today is commencement. Commencement isn't in our text, which I now realize I didn't even bother to read. So, 
just, just to get that out of the way, let's back up and read our passage. This is Romans 5. This is after he's made the argument that we're in trouble, there's something wrong out there, and there's something wrong in here. And he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since we no longer have to worry about building our cargo huts, since we've now been reunited with God in a, in a good, thriving relationship, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. This is a big hinge in, in, uh, in the book of Romans and it's also a big hinge in our personal, personal stories. Before, we were separated from God. We were trying to justify ourselves that everything was wrong. Now it's been done. Right? The, uh, the, the, the verb tense of justified in that verse means that it's done. It's over. Right? So the hinge now is that was then, this is now. And so that brings us to the third word, commencement. How do we then live? And I think another, you know, all three of these words I have a hard time uh, explaining to myself what they mean. I don't understand justifying his being, being made one with God again. And commencement, especially as a kid, I always interpreted to mean the end. All right, that's because when you're in school, you, uh, you have a commencement ceremony when? At the end of your schooling. So I always thought commencement meant end, but it doesn't. Obviously, it means the very beginning. It means turning away from what was and beginning something new. And I think too often we as Christians, and sometimes especially evangelical Christians, we think of being saved as the end. All right? The biggest thing that we do is we get our soul saved, and so the time spent from that point to the time we die or the Lord returns, we're basically just killing time. But that's not what Paul is saying. If that's what Paul is saying, when he gets to chapter 5 here, he should be wrapping up his letter. But he's got 11 more chapters to talk about what this means now that we have been justified, made right with God. Paul sees it as, as not just power to save our souls in the sweet by and by, but he sees it as powers to make our lives meaningful something to uh, drive us, to, to give us power and joy in this life. So for the next 11 chapters, that's what he's going to talk about. And that's why you should keep coming back, because people who are a lot better than I am are going to be telling you what those next 11 chapters mean and how you can apply it to your own lives. But I can't tell you this much. It's not easy. It's not like we can just declare victory at this point, give each other high fives and uh, say mission accomplished. Right after that in our, in our verse, it talked about suffering. We don't get pulled out of this world when we become saved. We're still here. But the good news is all that time we've spent justifying ourselves, all that work we've put in to make ourselves look better, all that work we've done to make ourselves look a little bit better than the guy next to us, we don't have to do that anymore. We've been made right. So what are we going to do with all our time? 
Now we can spend time enjoying creation, doing all those things that Cornelius Plantinus said that Shalom was all about, developing natural talents, uh, enjoying, or satisfying natural desires, enjoying life, also helping others, bringing in the right kingdom of God. That's the good news. The bad news is it's going to involve suffering. And uh, in the last several months, I've had some people near and dear to me suffer very tough losses, crushing losses. And I would expect in a group this size that there are people here undergoing amazing suffering. The difference between believers and non-believers isn't that believers don't suffer. The difference between believers and unbelievers isn't that uh, only good things happen to believers. When you suffer, don't think it means you're out of sorts with God. It's the natural condition of us in this veil of tears. The difference between believers and unbelievers is that when we suffer, God's there with us. I'm going to give you a bonus word besides uh, justification and commencement and peace. Thanks. Someone's been listening. Uh, it's sanctification. And sanctification has a whole lot of theological baggage on it. I think of it as becoming more and more the people we're, we're, we're supposed to be. If we started out by saying, knowing that, there was, uh, that, that we know that there's something wrong in here, sanctification is slowly the process of something being made right in here. And a lot of that process is going to happen through suffering, unfortunately. When I think of sanctification... I think of my old friend, Mary Honnold. And some of you guys who have been here a long time might remember her. She went here years ago. She was uh, in her late 80s, early 90s when I knew her. Noel, you know, remember Mary, right? Yeah. She was, uh, she, was, she was a Nebraska farm girl. And if you wanted to see a movie caricature of her, she would it. She just looked like she was homespun. Sweet, sweet old lady. You could picture her wearing a little bonnet. Just absolute joy. And she was sweet and fun and energetic. And I remember one day my wife saying, uh, well, Mary, of course she's cheerful and everything. Nothing bad has ever happened to her. Well, I knew Mary pretty well, and I knew her story. And I knew that... Uh, her husband died when she had two children that still had to raise, and that was tough. And I know that she had one daughter who had Hep B. What's the bad one? What's the C? He had Hep C. Eh, thank you. I have a wife who's an epidemiologist uh, and was on the uh, donor list, you know, to get a, a liver transplant for years and years. And it was really tough, and her health was bad. Her son was involved in a horrible traffic accident out of the state that she lived in, and she spent six to eight months basically living in a hospital and having the doctor tell her on more than one occasion, why are you hanging around here? He's not going to make it. Well, he didn't make it, but he was disabled after that point and lived a life that was full of struggles. Mary went through some really tough times, and yet she was a little bundle of joy. It was, you felt a little of God's presence if you sat next to her. 
And I remember her telling me that it was in those dark moments that she realized that God was there. And she said that uh, no matter what would happen in the future, she knew that God was there. The more you go and experience that, the more you know that he is going to be there and get you through it. The difference between believers and non-believers isn't that we don't suffer, it's that we don't suffer alone. And that even in our darkest moments, God's going to be there for us. We also suffer not alone because the rest of us who are believers carry each other's burdens. And maybe that's a little bit of the bad news too, is that when you join the club, when you become a believer, when bad things happen to other people, you feel it. The good news is when joyful things happen, you feel that too. All that time we've spent trying to justify ourselves and make ourselves uh, look a little better, that's all free now. Now we can use it helping others and enjoying life. But I'm going to give you one more bit of bad news. Sometimes not justifying ourselves is part of our suffering. And this doesn't really make sense until you experience it. But we spend so much time building our cargo huts and our fake planes, some of us have really built good ones. And it's hard to look at them and say, no, this no longer matters, and turn around and walk away. We spend all the time trying to get up this hill, and basically what, what, what Paul is telling us is that's the wrong hill. You should be over here. But we have to turn our backs on that. We have to give up our grudges to other people. We have to give up our score sheets. All that stuff we thought was important, right? Paul says in another one of his letters, I counted all his loss. All that stuff doesn't matter. And that's not an easy thing to do in reality. We want to keep our grudges. We want to keep our score sheets. We want to, we want to, we want to. Sometimes we talk about having the chains of sin broken from us. But there are other times when we're trying to hang on to those chains. We're trying to go back the way things were. So my charge to you this morning is commencement. Instead of going out there and trying to build your cargo huts, I want you to start living into this new world of being justified, not having to worry about yourself, but living in humble confidence. Humble because you know that God is doing it all. Confidence that you know that he's going to get you to the end. So we can live our lives full of joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of real suffering, knowing that God is going to see us through. That's all I got. Thank you for listening for long. I'm going to close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who we can come to in good times and bad. We thank you that uh, when we suffer, you're there, and when we're joyful, you're there. We do look forward, Lord, to the day when every tear will be wiped away. But we know that whatever you ask us to do, you're going to be there with us. Help us build our lives in such a way that bring in your kingdom and that show your glory to the world around us. Thank you again for all good things. Amen.